Amen. All right. Well, that brings us to Bible time. We are in the middle of our series in, uh, in the, the summer that we're going through all the major Bible stories. Not all of them, but a lot of the major Bible stories. If you grew up in church, you probably heard of these things in Sunday school. If you maybe didn't grow up in church, maybe you've at least heard of these, these stories and kind of wondered what they are about. And today we get to talk about one that I think is pretty ridiculously uh, uh, applicable for today. From the fact that it happened a long time ago. And it just shows us that God is sovereign and uh, gives us a lot of peace. And then, of course, that's the story that I'm talking about, uh, Daniel and the lions. Now, before we get to that, we're going to memorize some scripture like we like to do every week. And today, our scripture is Psalm 3.8 that says this, From the Lord comes deliverance. May your blessing be on your people. So, all right. So, pretty powerful. We'll talk about how that fits in today. From the Lord comes deliverance. Right? Don't we all want deliverance? Are you tired of being in bondage to all the lousiness of this world? Aren't you happy that there is deliverance? And not only that there is deliverance, we know where it comes from. That's called good news. From the Lord comes deliverance. And then the second part gets better. God doesn't just save us. He blesses us. It's like being pulled off a sinking ship that's like an old fishing ship that stinks and is rotting and has got all the rust on it. And we're pulled off of that under the best luxury cruise liner ever. Right? From the Lord comes deliverance. May your blessing be on your people. All right. It's good stuff. Isn't that awesome? So we have a God of hope, a God of goodness, a God of deliverance, and a God of blessing. And sometimes in this world... This world is, is not a place of hope, right? This place is, is not a place of goodness. This world isn't always a place of blessing. And I think so often we get our eyes on what's happening in this world as Christians and we can feel so defeated. But the reality is from the Lord comes deliverance. God's blessing is on his people. I'm going to talk about that today in an amazing story. And it's Daniel in the lion's den. And this is a story that talks about some really timely issues like this. Can faith survive in a culture of religious intolerance? Does that sound timely? Yeah. Or how about this? How then are we to respond if our laws obligate us to violate our consciences? You can think about a timely issue such as that. We're no longer living in a time or a space where there is much freedom of conscience. Right now, there are laws. People are losing, even in Colorado, losing businesses because they cannot practice their faith and abide by the laws. And they're having to choose. And in California, schools can't hire people because of their faith. Christians are being excluded from certain areas of, of, of life. That is happening right now, right here where we live. And so... I think there are times when we look at the newspaper and we read, there was a couple weeks ago, I was so, Sarah will tell you, I was so frustrated, upset. I came in because I was reading about these, the court cases and all these types of things and how our country is just spun off into chaos and how like our, our religious liberties are just really hanging by a thread and a lot of them are gone. And I was so discouraged and I was so frustrated with the way the world was, and I was angry, because that's what I get, like, right? Because I'm Irish, so I fight. And, uh, 
And then I was studying Daniel. And I came in and the light of Christ, I saw his hope. And I saw that God has answers to these questions. And there was a guy named Daniel who suffered things like this and worse. And he shows us how faith doesn't just survive in these things. How faith can thrive. And so we don't have room for fear. So if you have a Bible, uh, what you want to do, you want to turn it to Daniel 6. If you have one of our Bibles, that's going to be on page 618. Right? If you don't have a Bible, please use one of ours back there. You're welcome to use it. And if, really, if you don't have one at all, you can keep it. Just our gift to you. Now, as you're turning to Daniel 6, let me give you a little, little history of what's happening. I know I love context. Right? Daniel was around around the 7th century B.C., 700 years before Jesus even came, right? So think about what was happening on earth 700 years ago from now, right? Like we, the U.S. Wasn't even, didn't even exist, right? That was a long time ago, 700 years before Jesus. Now, at that time, uh, that was the, the northern portion of the tribes of Israel were already taken into captivity and gone. The first 10 tribes are already gone. The Assyrians basically destroyed that and they just disappeared. The southern kingdom is all that is left, and it is not doing so well. And so they've had a couple good kings, but over and over just things have been going downhill, and the Babylonians are now invading. And eventually the Babylonians are going to take over the southern kingdom. They're going to sack the temple and take the people captive. And so this is the time period this is writing. Now Daniel is a prophet during this time. Now he is the first of the apocalyptic prophets that we read in the New Te- or the, in the Bible. It's the Old Testament, New Testament. The first one that writes apocalyptic. And you say, what does that mean? Well, apocalypse or apocalyptic means to reveal. That's why the book of Revelation is called Revelation, right? It reveals, right? And so apocalyptic, there were four different times of scripture that we have apocalyptic prophecies. And uh, you have Daniel, you have Ezekiel, who writes that um, because I'm standing up here all of a sudden, I forgot. You have <laughs> um, Zechariah and, of course, Revelation. So those are the four. What is an apocalyptic prophet? What do they do? Apocalyptic prophets, they would see a vision. That's one of the things that make them unique is God would take them into the spirit or whatever and they would actually see something with their eyes and they're reporting on something that they saw. Now, the thing that they saw usually has uh, to do with the future. Not always. Sometimes it has to do with things, events that are occurring in the past, but usually it has events to do with the future. So they're seeing something in the heavenlies that has to do with the future. Those things oftentimes are very vivid and powerful images, oftentimes are also symbols. Whilst they are also real, they are also symbols. For an example, in Revelation we read about a dragon that comes up out of the sea and then is going to eat a baby, right? So John saw that. Now we know that the dragon wasn't like Puff, the magic dragon or anything like that, going down (laughs) to eat a little baby. It's It's the devil, right, coming up to try to kill Jesus. Right? So there are symbols that represent very real things. And they write about these things and they, they, they mark them down. And the last thing about what makes an apocalypse which is different than most other prophecies is it's not written in a poetic form. It's written in prose, kind of like when you would read the newspaper. It's how they read. It's what it looks like. It's how it sounds. And so it's unique. It's different than most prophecies. And these are, are fun to read. They're a little bit zany. Now, the book of Daniel is set up into two parts. You have the first six chapters talk about Daniel's life. The second six are his prophecies, right? And so that's kind of a little primer on Daniel. Now, Daniel was about 15 years old. He was born into uh, 
uh, a royal family in the, in the southern kingdom. So he was raised with the best of education, the best of everything. He gets to about 15 years old, and the Babylonians invade. Now, ultimately, the southern kingdom, uh, Judah, falls in 586. But before that, in uh, 605, the first invasion comes in, and that's where Daniel was taken to captivity in 605. So he's a 15-year-old boy from a, a high-respected family. The Babylonians come in, and they put shackles around his neck. They strip him naked, and they march him up to Babylon along with a lot of their people. Now, they didn't totally burn Jerusalem yet, but they pretty much humiliate it. You, the Babylonians took the wealthy, the powerful, the, the higher class, right? They're going to take them into captivity, and they march them up to Babylon. And so that's how he begins his life. He grows up knowing God. And then God doesn't save him or his family or his city, which they thought because the, they had the Holy of Holies and all that kind of stuff. They thought no enemy could take Jerusalem, but they did. And so he saw God not come through in, his, in a way for him, and he goes into captivity into Babylon at 15. Now, because he was handsome and because he was well-educated and because he was young and because he was part of the nobility, the Babylonians did something special for Daniel, and they would do this occasionally for that type of, of individual. The rest of the, those who went to captivity usually went into slavery, and they would become slaves to the Babylonians. But for the higher end, the ones that they would want to turn into to Babylonians themselves, that's the best way to win society, right? And so what they did is they educated Daniel. They, they said, listen, you're going to become one of us. So we're going to train you in our schools now, and you're going to eat our food, and you're going to dress like us, and you're going to learn to talk like us, and you're going to serve our kingdom. And the, so it was a way of basically destroying the old culture. And so Daniel was singled out for this. And the first thing that happens for Daniel in the midst of all this is uh, the Babylonians, they ate a lot of food that the Jews couldn't eat. And they had like lobster and things like this that the Jews just could not have. Now, Daniel had a choice as a young man, being taken as a captive as a, uh, in slavery. Now, he could either, as a slave, go in there and say, listen, uh, my God didn't save me. I'm going to enjoy all this rich Babylonian food. I, I, you know, I lucked out. I don't have to be a slave. I'll just eat this, keep my head down, and enjoy the ride. Or his other one was saying, I can reject this food because it's against the laws of my God. What does he do? Because if he rejects it, he could be killed. Or he could be thrown into slavery. I mean, it's a big deal. But Daniel wondered, what do I do if the law requires me to violate my conscience? Well, he used reason. He talked to his captors and he said, listen, thank you for the, the, the wonderful smorgasbord. It looks fantastic. But I can't eat most of those things because it violates the laws of my God. Is it okay if I just eat vegetables and drink water, right? If I just eat the, the vegetarian portions that I know are safe. And the person that was in charge of him said, no, you can't do that because you're, if, we all know that vegetarians look weak and anemic, right? <laughs> so if you go that route, then, uh, you know, they'll kill me. And Daniel said, hey, he reasoned with him. He said, you know, these guys that are with me and all that, I tell you what, give us a couple weeks, let us try this vegetarian diet, and if it works, and we look healthy and all that kind of stuff, then will you let us continue that no, you know, nobody's hurt? And if we look bad, then fine, we'll eat this food. And so two weeks later, a couple weeks later, the, guard, the, the person comes back, checks them out, and says, man, you guys look better than everybody else. I don't know what's happening, but all right, go vegetarian. And that's what they did. Talk about taking one for God, by the way, right? 
I mean, you have this beautiful smorgasbord above you, and you just choose to be a vegetarian because you honor God. That's something. That shows you his character. But he also had wisdom. And because of that, at a young age, he showed, he distinguished himself amongst the other Hebrews. And they saw that you, it took wisdom and it took faithfulness, and you could continue to live your faith in a righteous way, even in a difficult culture. But it would take wisdom. And so he does that, and so the Jews begin to respect him. Now, Daniel is a smart guy, and so he was put into the school of, of the, 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 the wise men. And so one night, as he was uh, beginning in the trade or whatever, he's training and all that kind of stuff, he gets a knock on the door, and this is, the guards are there, and they said, okay, we're here to kill you. And Daniel's like, uh, sorry? <laughs> right? Because that's not how most of us like to wake up. And so he's like, um, okay, but before you kill me, can you at least tell me what I did? And so it's not anything you did, but uh, the king had a dream, and nobody can interpret his dream, and so the king decided that all the wise men should be killed, because that makes sense. <laughs> and Daniel was like, well, can I have a stab at it? I mean, kind of so, so Daniel's praying, and he goes up, they say, okay, fine. And so he goes up, and he prays, and he asks God, God, you gave this guy a dream, then help me interpret. Well, he gets there, and he finds out the problem is that the king not only wants his t- dream interpreted, he wants the wise men to tell him what his dream was first. And that's how the, the king would know that the wise men weren't just like making something up. So Daniel's like, oh man, okay. So he really starts praying because he knows that God knows this. And he says, all right, God, help me out. And God tells him what the dream is and the interpretation. And it's a crazy interpret. I mean, it's a dream about a statue. It has to do with world history and it was fulfilled absolutely. And, and right now we're in the last part of that. It is a crazy, you need to read it. It's so fun. But because of that, because he was able to interpret this dream, he trusted God and he showed wisdom. Not only did he not die, he saved all the other wise men, so he gained their respect, but he also gained the respect of Nebuchadnezzar, who was the emperor of Babylon. Powerful guy. Now, Nebuchadnezzar, up to this point, didn't know God at all, but by the end of Nebuchadnezzar's life, Nebuchadnezzar two times orders that everyone in the Babylonian empire worship the God of Israel. His God awareness grew because Daniel was faithful in a very difficult society. Now, that was the first part of that, but then there was also uh, Nebuchadnezzar, he died. And, and this guy named Belshazzar ends up taking the, the throne, and Belshazzar was a bozo. And, you know, he was young and didn't know what he was doing, and ends up, you know, throwing this big party. He forgets about Daniel. Daniel was high in, in a position, but he forgets about him. Daniel, by this time, is an old man. He's like near 80 or whatever, right? So this young Belshazzar, he's out there, at, and he's in this walled city of Babylon, and there's no one can attack him, right? And the Persians are out there, but he's like, eh, don't worry about the Persians. We've got this big city of Babylon. We have an empire. We're fine. So he's throwing a party, and he says, you know what? This party is great, but you want to make it better? If we were drinking wine out of the goblets that we stole from, from, from Israel, from their holy temple, Right, because those were things that were reserved for their gods. So let's just throw some insult to injury here. Let's drink out of those things, which was a bad idea. <laughs> because they bring these golden things in there and they, they start drinking their wine from it, and all of a sudden a hand shows up and starts writing on the wall. And many, many Tekel Parsons, that's what it said. And, and they're like, we have no idea what that means. Of course, we all know what it means, but they didn't. And so they were like, hey, what does this mean? Obviously, it's important. It's writing on the wall. It's a hand writing on the wall. And, um, and so somebody said, hey, you remember that guy, Daniel? He could interpret dreams and all that kind of stuff. He was a wise individual. Maybe he knows. And so Belshazzar brings in Daniel. And he says, hey, do you know what that means? And Daniel looks at him. And he's like, uh-huh. I do know what that means. It says measured, measured, weighed, and, and uh, separated, divided. And I said, let me, let me tell you what that means, old great Belshazzar. It means that God has, has measured you. 
And he's measured you and he's weighed you and he's found you wanting and he's dividing, he's taking the kingdom away from you. And Belshazzar was so impressed that somebody could read the writing, he's like, wow, I don't like what it says, but well done. And he says, you know what? You're going to be second in command in the whole kingdom. So that very night he puts on a purple robe and all the cords and all that kind of stuff and a ring on his finger and says, Daniel, you are now vice emperor of, of the kingdom. And it was a great promotion, but it didn't last long because that very night the Persians did a sneak attack and they went through the waterways. So brilliant. The History Channel is a great th- reenactment of it. It's awesome. And they get inside and they, and they open up the gates and, they, and the Persians come in and they take over the Babylonian Empire with one battle in one night, like overnight. One of the world's greatest empire falls. It's amazing. And militarily, it was just a beautiful strategy, right? Well, God was in that. And the reason that the Babylonians didn't fight back is because they didn't like Belshazzar and they really liked the, the, the uh, emperor Cyrus of Persia. Because he actually claimed that he had the genetic, uh, he was like one of the pers- first real Babylonians, right? So they liked him anyhow. So they went into that. The, uh, the, now the empire is under a new rule, a new pagan rule. You have Daniel, who just got this great promotion, immediately loses it because now he's again captivity. But because he was wise and all that, um, we start our reading, the story, in uh, chapter 6. It's kind of where everything picks up. And it says this, it pleased Darius. You say, well, who's Darius? Well, Darius was the guy who worked for Cyrus, right? He was, the, uh, he was going to be, Cyrus said, listen, you take over the Babylonian Empire, you get to be king over all of that. You get to run that for me now that it's part of the Persian Empire. So Cyrus, or Darius worked for Cyrus, but he was basically the top guy who used to run the Babylonian Empire. So Darius, he says, it pleased Darius to appoint 120 satraps to rule throughout the kingdom with three administrators over them, and one of whom was Daniel. So he sets up his new empire, and there's 120 people, these satraps, what were they? Well, they were basically, they were there to make sure that the, the king, that Cyrus got all of the, the, uh, the tributes that were due him, right? That the people actually paid the money to him and they weren't going to rebel. These satraps were, were powerful people, and there was only 120 of them over the entire ex-Babylonian empire. So these were powerful guys. And there was three people in charge of them, and Daniel is one of them. So Daniel finds himself at a place of great prominence right off the bat. And so he knows Darius personally. And he works really hard. And it says in verse 3, Now Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Darius was going to make him the prime minister. He did all right. Not too bad for you know, an old guy who's living in a difficult culture. He, he served well, even in a pagan culture. But you know, politics have not changed ever. Like, here you have a really good guy working in the government doing a good job. You would think everybody would be like, hey, he's doing a good job. This is awesome. Oh no, that's not how we work. In verse 4 it says, At this the administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds and charges against Daniel in his conduct of governing affairs, But, of course, they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. So finally, these men said, we're never going to find any basis for our charges against this man, Daniel, unless it has something to do with the laws of his God. See, that's how dirty politicians work, right? They have no, they don't care about the good of society or the good of other people. They just want to have power. And if you're in their way, they're going to take you down. And if they can't find anything wrong with you, they're going to make up something wrong with you. 
And so they said, you know what, Daniel, his greatest strength is his integrity. That's why we couldn't find anything wrong with him. So we're going to turn that strength into a weakness. And they began to plot and they came up with an evil scheme, as wicked politicians often do. And so we read there, this is their scheme. So the administrators, starting verse 6, and the satraps, as a group, went to the king. You know, these cowards, they all kind of go together. I can imagine, like, <laughs> oh, great king, we have an idea. And they say, may King Darius live forever. The royal administrators, the perfects, the satraps, the advisors, the governors have all agreed that the king should issue an edict to enforce a decree that anyone who prays to any god or human being during the next 30 days, except you, your majesty, shall be thrown into the lion's den. Now, your majesty, issued a decree and put it in writing so it cannot be altered in accordance with the laws of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be repealed. They knew how to play him like a fiddle. Like, all right, we don't want to get what we want. We're going we're to butter him up. We're going to make him think this is all about him. Oh, great Darius, we were all talking. We were like, you are just so fantastic. <laughs> all of us. And we just listed everybody that really matters. And we just said, you know what? Really, we should only pray to you. So would you just help us along with that and just make, make it law? What we all would want to do anyway. Right? Feed the ego of the politician. That'll work. And it did. So what do we read? He says this. So King Darius put the decree into writing. You notice how specifically they wrote that too. They didn't just say that the people would be killed. They're like, no, whoever does this, thrown into the pit of lions. I'll let you know at that time, that was like the absolute worst, most feared death. For good reason. That sounds absolutely horrible. So in verse 10, we find out there's actually persecution. Here is Daniel. You would think a high-ranking official like him would be above persecution. He's, the king loves him, right? Going to make him prime minister. The people love him. He's doing a good job. We find sometimes dirty politics. It, it, it sometimes even finds its way when it gets into the law. messes things up. And so Daniel is there and he's facing persecution. He's going to lose everything. So what does he do? He has a law that tells him to violate his conscience. How does he act? Well, in verse 10, it says, Now Daniel learned that the decree had been published. And so he went home to his upstairs room where the windows were open towards Jerusalem. Three times a day he got down on his knees and praised, giving thanks to his God, just as he had done before. Did anything change for Daniel? You see, we have to obey God, not people, right? And Daniel saw that, and he said, Your law as mighty as it is, is an invalid law. Because the right to freedom of conscience is not something that a government bestows, but is bestowed upon each individual by their God. That is actually what, when we had our Declaration of Independence, that's what it was written in there. It just says these are inalienable rights. It means that governments don't give these rights nor take them away. And he says to himself, and he says to the rest of culture, he says, you know what, I'm going to practice the freedom that my God has given me. Now, it's not sinful for Daniel to not pray for 30 days, is it? Is there anywhere in the Bible that says you have to pray every three times a day? Or once a day? No. And then, you know, Daniel could have prayed with the windows closed. He could have said, okay, during this time I'll just close my windows. I always pray with them open, but I'll close them now so I don't offend society. No, because he was not going to bow down to this wrong and immoral law. Nor do we find Daniel down on the street with a picket. Hey, down with the king, don't pray, right? <laughs> he quietly, faithfully continues what he has already done. Now, I think it's important to say that he, what he's already done. It's not like Daniel heard about this law and says, okay, now I'm going to pray. 
If he wasn't praying before, no business praying now. But he had a lifetime of consistency. He says, this is what I do. The law's not going to change that. I'm going to obey my God. And that's what he does. Consistently does exactly what he'd always done before. And so what happens? Well, the dirty politicians got what they want. It says, then these men went as a group, just kind of, and they knew where he was going to be, right? Every day, three times a day. Got their binoculars out. <laughs> right? Waiting for it, waiting for it. Aha, there he is. He prayed. You saw him. You saw him, right? So what do they do? It says they found him praying and asking God for help. Isn't that what we should do in the midst of difficult times? Daniel was not too prideful. He just knew that, okay, God, you're going to have to get this. And so what did these, these rats do? Well, they went to the king and they spoke to him about his royal decree. They didn't just go to the king and say, Hey, king, Daniel broke your law. Throw him in the lion's den. Look at how they do this. Look how sneaky they are. They say to him, Hey, did, did you not publish a decree that during the next 30 days anyone who prays to any god or human except you, your majesty, would be thrown into the lion's den? The king has no idea the trap's already been sprung yet. But they're making it so he can't deny it. Hey, didn't you pass that great thing, O king, right? So no one could pray at anybody other than you? And he's like, so he's like, well, that's a silly question. But yeah, he says, yeah, the decree stands in accordance with the laws of the Medes and the Purge, which stands, and it cannot be repealed. By his own admission, they knew that they had him. And so then they, they show him that he was, what he, he was already trapped. They said, oh, then king, Daniel, you know, it was one of the exiles from Judah. You see here the racial kind of uh, snobbery there? You could never really trust. He was never one of us anyway, that, that exile. He pays no attention to you, your majesty. Order the decree you put in writing. He still prays three times a day. And I imagine when the king heard that, he's like, oh yeah, Daniel always prays three times a day. Ah, oh, and he realized that he had been trapped by these dirty politicians. And here is this mighty, powerful king and there's nothing he can do. It says, At this, the king was greatly distressed, for he was determined to rescue Daniel and made every effort until sundown to rescue him because he had till the end of the day. And remember, Daniel prayed three times a day, so it's already probably later in the day. He doesn't have a lot of time. I imagine him calling in the lawyers, saying, Okay, what can we do? And all his advisors and lawyers are like, There's no way around this. You, you wrote this into law. It has to, you know, it has to happen. So then, these guys, they know that they got him, so they press it. Verse 15, the men went as a group to the king and said to him, Hey, remember, your majesty, that according to the laws of the Medes and the Persians, no decree or edict the king issues can be changed. Basically, they're saying, listen, God, king, if you don't throw Daniel into the lion's den, then we have to throw you in the lion's den. Because that's what would happen. They had him. And so the king gave the order. And they brought Daniel and they threw him into the lion's den. And and the king said to Daniel, and don't miss the irony of this, he says, may your God, whom you serve continually, rescue you. Darius, or, yeah, Darius who had no idea who God really is, he begins to trust the God of, of Daniel. And he tells Daniel, it's against the law for you to pray to your God, but I would pray to him right now if you would. <laughs> right? That's why we're being punished, so if you wouldn't mind praying to your God, because I don't want you to die, and I can't rescue, so maybe your God will do what I can't. You see, Darius is making an appeal to God. <laughs> At the very same time, he's not supposed to allow anybody to pray to anybody. As he throws Daniel in the lion's den for doing that. It's just so rich and dripping with irony. I love it. 
And so then, that's what happened, and a stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring, and this is something interesting, and with the rings of his nobles, so that Daniel's situation would not change. Now, he was thrown into like a big, it would have been like a big deep pit in the ground with a, like on the side of a hill. It would be a door on the side or maybe in a cave or something where a lion could be let in and then there would be like a, a gate or something that keeps the lions in there. Over the top would have been a, a circular entrance area where you would drop the person in, ah, right? And they would fall about 12 feet and then they would be munched up by the lions, which that's not a great way to end. And then over the top was a massive stone. So in case you did were able to climb onto that curved wall somehow, a ceiling, you couldn't climb your way out. So it's, he was basically locked in. And then the king, they sealed with his ring. So they pour hot wax in, and the king would put his ring, the seal on there, basically saying, this is how we know it hasn't been broken. It's kind of like we have like the, the pop tops on our, our soda cans and stuff like that, you like that, and you know that nobody else has been in there because it's sealed. Well, this is how they did it. They had a ring, right? And if you move the rock, it would break the wax. The king didn't just put his own signet ring in there. That was enough because he was the one that wrote the law. He made his nobles put their rings into it too. Why? Because it was them that actually put Daniel into the lion's den. And it was them, now he had legal record of all the people, all those lousy people that did this, which turns out to be helpful later on. And so, so then the, so we have Daniel's in there, and what happens? Well, the king returns to his palace in verse 18. He spends the night, and what happens? He doesn't eat, and he doesn't have any entertainment being brought to him because he could not sleep. You see, even wicked people, even pagan leaders, know when injustice happens and it bothers them part of our, our nature and our core. He knew something wrong had happened and he was forced into doing something awful. And even though he had, was the one that had to give the order to put Daniel into the lion's den, he knew it was wrong. And it troubled him all night long. And so at first light of dawn, that's legally as long as he had to wait. He had to wait overnight. So as soon as the sun pops up, and I imagine the king just waiting for the sun to pop up so he can get down there. So he waits as long as legal as he has to and he gets up and he hurries down the lion's den. When the king runs to the lion's den, everybody else has got to get up and go to the lion's den too, right? And so when he came near the den, he called out to Daniel in an anguished voice. You can tell he cared for Daniel. Why would this pagan king, who is so pagan that he would require other people to pray to him, that's pretty wicked, love a righteous man? Because Daniel was faithful for a long period of time. He earned the king's respect and affection and friendship. And, and the king says to him, look what the king says, Daniel, servant of whom? The living God. See, the king's God awareness is growing. Dan, he realized, the king realized that people were supposed to pray to me and I can't even serve my best ser- save my best servant. So Daniel, servant of the living God, the God who actually can save, the one who can actually deliver, he says, Daniel, servant of the living God, whom you serve so continually, has your God been able to rescue you from the lions? As he cries out, probably hope against hope. But it was Daniel's faithfulness that gave him hope. Daniel wasn't thrown in the lions alone. He knew that Daniel had his God. He knew that Daniel had righteousness. And he hoped against hope that, his, that Daniel's God would come through. And what happens? Daniel answers. He says, hey, may the king live forever. And the king was like, I'm so glad that you are too. He says, my God sent his angel and shut the mouths of the lions. They have not hurt me because I was found innocent in his sight, O great king. Could I imagine Daniel was a little perturbed that he got thrown in that lion's den? He says, nor have I done anything wrong before you, your majesty. 
right? Because if you've already, you know, faced the death penalty, what's the king going to do to you, right? So you can tell him how you, what you really think, right? I'm innocent. I told you I was innocent. You made up this stupid law. That's why I had to spend the night down here, thank you very much, but my God took care of me. And the king was overjoyed. Now, get this. The king was so prideful. This is the kind of prideful man who, who would write a decree that no one could break, not even himself, that everyone should pray to him and not to anybody else. That has a lot of pride. Prideful people typically don't like to be proven wrong, especially publicly. But here you have a prideful man so glad that he was wrong. He was overjoyed and gave the orders to lift Daniel out of the den. And when Daniel was lifted from the den, no wound was found on him because he trusted God. And that is why. Now, remember all those dirty politicians? They didn't think very far in advance. Right? Because... He would still be king after Daniel died, right? Even if Daniel died. And those dirty politicians played one over on the king. Do you think the king would really like that? He may have made some powerful enemies. And the king had all night to think about what he was going to do to these guys. Well, we find out at the king's command, the men who had falsely accused Daniel were brought in and thrown into the lion's den along with their wives and children. And before they reached the floor of the den, the lions overpowered them and crushed all their bones. You say, well, that's a harsh punishment. Yeah, yeah, that's, it's a pagan culture. And you know what? I think the thing is that the, the lions mosh not just one person, but the entire families of all these awful nobles. And how did he know what nobles? Well, he had their signet rings on wax right in front of him, proof that these are the guys who sealed Daniel in there. Throw them all in and their families, and before the people even hit the ground, the lions kill them all. Those lions were hungry. That shows miracle. It wasn't just like people would say, oh, well, Daniel just got lucky the lions were hungry that night. Oh, no, they were hungry. And I think at that point, it's kind of like when we watch a movie and we're so happy, like when the bad guy gets, you know, like, you know, the bad guy gets the horrible, awful death, you know, like most superhero movies, and we're all just like, yeah, that's what happened, right? And I imagine Daniel feeling somewhat vindicated. Right And say, oh, well, maybe you guys should pray to the king that maybe he might save you. Like I pray, oh, wait, the king's throwing you in there? Mm, too bad for you, right? <laughs> I guess you can't pray to anybody else by your own law, right? Maybe a little taunting. I doubt it, but maybe in his head. But that's not the end of the story. Here's what happens. Here's a king that just a couple, couple weeks before this probably signs a law that says, you can't pray to anybody other than me, right? A king that writes down an anti-religious freedom (laughs) law, a law that makes believers violate their conscience. We were in a very hostile environment to believers under King Darius for a time, right? We find in 24 hours, everything changes. And the king writes a new decree. And this decree... It says, King Darius wrote to all the nations of people everywhere of all languages on earth. That's a, that's a pretty wide swath. And he says this, May you prosper greatly. I issue a decree that in every part of this kingdom, my kingdom, people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel. For he is a living God and he endures forever and his kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. And he rescues and he saves and he performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on the earth. And he has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. You see how massive of a change that was? You went in 24 hours from a, from a society that prohibited belief to one that mandates it. And this was no small empire. This was like the largest empire in the world at the time. 
Can God change culture? I would think that the believers, but when they saw Daniel being thrown in the lions, they thought, oh, God has lost. We have lost. There's no hope. Look at these dirty politicians win. And God in 24 hours turns a, a culture of, of, of punishment, of persecution into one that actually is a, it's a government of proclamation. <laughs> that actually the government itself is saying, this is the one true God. Daniel lets me know that I should never give up hope. No matter what our culture and society looks like, we are one faithful act away from God doing something amazing. That is an awesome thing. And then we read in verse 28, So Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and Cyrus. That's a cool thing. The Lord brought him deliverance. The Lord's blessing was on his people, wasn't it? That's the amazing thing is that it's the same God today. No different. And the world's pretty much the same, isn't it? I mean, we still have dirty politicians, don't we? And we still have the same God who can still deliver just as powerfully as he's always done. Now, what are our takeaways from this story? This is a, such an encouraging story. The first one is this, is that we represent God. You understand that? Daniel got this. We represent God. It's not if you want to represent God. Once you become a Christian, you represent him. It's not you don't act like salt and light. You are salt and light. He doesn't say that you, you can act like my ambassadors. He says you are my ambassadors. When we are Christians, what the world sees of us, that's what they assume of God. And Daniel got this. Daniel lived a faithful life. He was consistent with what God said. And so when it push, push came to shove, the king knew the character of our God because he saw God's character through Daniel. He said, you serve the living God. You serve a faithful God. You serve a present God, right? He knew what God was like because of how Daniel lived. And how long did it take Daniel to live that way? Well, Daniel was an old man now in his 80s. So he's been captive for like over seven decades in a pagan culture. But he lived consistently. But Daniel represents God. Our world is watching. When Christians act like pagans, then the world thinks our God is no different than theirs. Right? When our lifestyles and our, what we do and how we act and how we care for one another looks like the rest of this world, they will say our God is as fake and as dead as they know theirs is. But if we represent our God in how we live and how we act, right, then we're actually doing our part. Now, what if, what if Daniel lived a, a life where he was like, I don't want to suffer, and so I'm just going to kind of delve into a few things. So, you know, he lived a fearful life. He closed the curtains when he prayed, right? You know, he, he would accept the lobster when it showed up. So he would, if he showed that, what kind of God do you think the Babylonians and eventually the Persians would think our God is? They would think he's a coward, a powerless God, a God that's less powerful than the government, right? A, a God that can be manipulated. Now, would God really be powerless, defeated or manipulated? No, but they would think he was because of how they lived. He, they represent God. Recognize you and I represent God. That's what God tells us in the word, right? He says, you are my ambassadors. And we go out in this world and we, we get to show the people and tell the people who Jesus is. We represent him. And because of that, the second thing that we find out is that integrity is essential then. We have to live according to what we believe. As Christians, we can't, it's not just, living a, a righteous life is not just about you. Yeah, you benefit when you don't sin, because sin brings death and problems into our own lives, but it's more than just about you. 
how we live affects so many others. It affects the congregation, but it affects our community. Integrity matters. When people are watching, are you living the way that you claim to live? Or are you making concessions with the world to make your life easier? But how about this? Even when people aren't watching, or you don't think they are, are you still living consistently with what you say you believe? Now, we all call Jesus Savior, but we also call him Lord. That means he has the right to tell us how to live. And we agree that that's a good idea because he's got a better way of living than either of us came up with, right? Because our way of life led us to the point that we needed the cross. Are you living like he's our boss? Do you have integrity consistently? Now, consistency is not perfection. Integrity is this. I'm living according to what God tells me to do, and then sometimes I'm going to sin, and I do. Integrity is this. When I sin, I call it what it is. I don't justify it. I don't say, well, here's all the reasons why this step is okay. It says, no, actually, I'm supposed to be over there. And I might need some help to get back over there, but I need to go over there. And it begins with that. Integrity is essential because we represent God. And I think the third thing that we recognize then in this world is wisdom is required. It's not easy to live a righteous life with integrity in an unrighteous world full of people that aren't very good, <laughs> that have very little integrity, right? There are dirty politicians in all parts of our lives, aren't there? So we have to have wisdom. Sometimes it's, it's knowing what to do. Sometimes it's knowing what not to do. Now, where do you get that wisdom? Well, don't we remember our memory verse that from the Lord comes deliverance? You see, this world can't deliver you. It's not going to free you. It's not going to give you a new life or a better way of living. Your, your own experience is not going to save you. Your own self-righteousness isn't going to do it either, right? Your wealth, your good looks, opportunities, all of those things aren't going to deliver you. From the Lord comes deliverance. And so therefore, we should fear the Lord, right? Don't be afraid of losing your looks or your money or your opportunity, right? But you should definitely fear what would life be like without my God. And it says this, the fear of the Lord in Proverbs, the book of wisdom, says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So when we start to begin to understand that we need God and that he's first and, and that life works best and we follow him, that's where wisdom begins. Now, once we know that, God, Scripture tells us that we need to ask God for wisdom, don't we? When we recognize that he's got a better way and we say, God, I need your help, we need to ask for wisdom. Now, how do you do that? Pray. You talk to him. And you say, God, I want it. I would like some wisdom. And James tells us anytime a person asks for wisdom, doesn't matter even how lousy you've been, he's going to give you wisdom without finding fault. It's a give me. And so part of our life is then to be faithful and consistent, but begin bringing our life before God and saying, God, I would really like to know what your wisdom tells me to do in this situation. And I think you'll find that as we go through the days that we begin to talk to God a whole lot, not just once a day, but many times a day, asking for his wisdom and wisdom things. So what's the moral of this story? You've got to be faithful. Daniel was faithful. If you boil it down to that, in this world, the world's not going to be faithful. That shouldn't surprise us. The world is not run by God yet, right? He said he'd overcome this world, but he's letting us kind of run amok. He's letting the enemy kind of own this place for a little while. Of course it's going to be messy. It's going to take some wisdom. But I'll tell you this, it's going to take faithfulness. As a Christian, we must be faithful, consistently faithful. If we're faithful to God, amazing things happen. 
And that's when we can see an entire nation turn 180 degrees from being a persecuting nation to a proclaiming nation overnight. God can do whatever he wants. For what we need to do is be faithful. So what do you do with that? How do you put that story into practice? The last thing you want to do is hear God's word and not do something about it. Well, I got some ideas. So if you take out your connection card and you flip it around onto the backside, I've got some ideas for you. And, and so the first thing may be this. Maybe you're here this morning and you don't have a relationship with Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Right? It's from the Lord comes deliverance. We talked, Keith said this, this morning that no one comes to the Father except through him. If that makes no sense to you, you've never... Um, accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you don't even know what that means, or maybe you want to find out more, there's a thing right here that says, I would like more information about starting a relationship with Jesus. Mark that off. I'm not going to give you a sales pitch today, but what I'd like to do is meet with you this week. If you would write down your name and contact information, if you want to know how to start a relationship with Jesus, what does it mean to have this God in your life, in control of your life, then let me know, and, and we'll talk. And we'll answer your questions, we'll go through what does it mean, take the steps of faith, how to become a follower of his. But for the rest of us, how do we pl- apply this? Well, here's some things I'm going to suggest. How about this? Maybe you start by memorizing Psalm 3.8. Because what a great reminder is that the God brings us deliverance. We are never without hope. We have good news. And God is a God of blessing. And so we can follow him faithfully, even when things are difficult, even if we get tossed into the den of lions. God is there. And God will always do, use everything to his good. Or how about this? How about we read Daniel 1 through 6? You want to read the story of this faithful man? There's so much I left out, and there's like people being thrown in the furnaces and all kinds of stuff in there. You want to read this story. It's awesome. It's adventurous, and it'll build your faith. So maybe this week you say, you know what? I want to read Daniel uh, 1 through 6. What does it look like to be a faithful follower in a difficult culture? Or how about this? Maybe what you need to do is ask God for wisdom. Maybe you're not in the practice of talking to God and asking for wisdom. You've been trying to run this life, even as a Christian, without really asking, what should I do? Well, maybe this week you begin by starting each day. Say, God, okay, or the situations arise. Give me your wisdom on this, please. I think you'll be amazed at how your life can change. Or how about this? Maybe what you need to do is to, is, uh, to live consistently. You know some, there's a sin in your life. You know that there's some way that you are, either in your beliefs or in how you're living, that you know are out of step with what God wants. And maybe this week as you say, you know what, I'm going to at least admit that I'm out of step. And I'm going to start to make the effort to get back in, in, in line with what God wants so I can live with integrity because I represent a powerful God, the God who actually does deliver. Maybe there's something else that I didn't write down. Please let me know because we want to pray for you this week, support you as you follow Christ, but I also like to know what's happening so we can um, support you the best way we can. Also, if you have a prayer request, please let us pray for you this week. You can write that down right now. And know that our staff and our pastor will be praying for you this week and supporting you as you grow in Christ. Um, here in just a minute, we're going to take our offering. As we take our offering, please take these, put these in the offerings basket, these connection cards in the offering basket along with your tithes and offerings, making this an offering of yourself to God. All right. Before we do that, is it all right? Let's pray for those. Bless our, our, our commitments and our, our, our gifts. Let's do that now. Heavenly Father, we are grateful that you are an eternal God, a powerful God, but a loving God. That you're the God who can deliver. And Lord, you're also the God who can destroy. And so, Father, we're grateful that you chose to offer us a way to be made right with you through Christ. We thank you that you didn't just leave us in this world to try to run this world according to what we think is best, but you've given us your Holy Spirit and you've given us our Holy Scriptures that give us direction and help us to know what is right and to live wise lives that lead to life. Lord, I pray that you would, that you would take these commitments that we are making right now And you will help us to keep those. 
And as we keep these commitments, Father, that you would